Welcome back, y'all. My name is Erin, and this is the What in the Sam Hill podcast, where I investigate paranormal phenomena, high strangers, cryptozoology, ancient mythology, and the delightfully odd. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to encourage you to check out the Substack, because there you'll find show notes for each episode that contain relevant links to the papers, the articles, the books that I used in my research for the episode. I also want you to encourage... I also want to encourage you to subscribe to the show, leave a review, and share the podcast with your friends. Let's build a community of weirdos together. So, today I am drinking on a Black Butte Porter. It's out of Bend, Oregon, and it is fantastic. It's the local dark beer that my gas station sells, and I am into it. I'm a big fan of dark beers. I don't know if that's because I'm a whiskey drinker, you know what I mean? Like a dark liquor, dark beer kind of person, but man, I can't really, I cannot stand IPAs at all. They're disgusting. And pretty much, I mean, like I can get by with a, with like a Miller Lite, but especially in the summer, if it's hot, but if I really want to enjoy my, enjoy a beer, it's got to be a dark beer. So today I want to talk about ancient mythology. Specifically, I want to talk about the Temple of Solomon and the pillars of the Temple of Solomon, which you may have been heard of as Joaquin and Boaz. Um, You'll see these pillars on the High Priestess Tarot card, for example. You will see these pillars in um, Freemasonry. You will see these pillars in, uh, even in parts of Wicca through Gerald Gardner and in various other esoteric traditions, um, over the last 100, 150 years. Um, but as far as where they originated, the earliest kind of documentation that we have of them is obviously through the Bible. Alright, so we're going to be looking at 2 Chronicles 3, 14 through, si- 14 through 17. Um, it's also referenced in 1 Kings 7, 13 to 22, but let's look at, for, at 2 Chronicles here. He made the veil of purple or blue, purple, and crimson yarn and fine linen with cherubim woven into it. In front of the temple, he made two pillars, which together were 35 cubits high each with a capital on top measuring five cubits. He made interwoven chains and put them on top of the pillars. He made a hundred pomegranates and fastened them into the chain work. Then he set up the pillars in front of the temple, one on the south and one on the north. The pillar on the south he named Yaquin, and the pillar on the north he named Boaz. So that's the earliest reference we have of these pillars. Um, obviously the Temple of Solomon is noted and famous as one of the ancient wonders, um, the seven ancient wonders, and as various, various points in, um, Jewish history, they have attempted to rebuild this temple, um, to varying degrees of success. So what I want to do is read you some of the takes that other people have had um, when describing the, we'll say, um, 
esoteric nature of them. Oh, actually, before we do that, let's talk about what people think that Joaquin and Boaz possibly mean. Um, so we're going to look at the Strong's Concordance. So for Boaz, it says quickness, an ancestor of David, and a pillar before the temple. Um, and Boaz obviously is also the name of the husband of Ruth in the Bible. And then Yakin was possibly named He Will Establish. That's what uh, Strong's Concordance is says, is He Will Establish. And there are some other um, figures that are named Yakin throughout the Bible, um, although none as famous as Boaz. Okay, so let's get into um, some of this more esoteric knowledge. So this is from The Hidden Power by Thomas Troward, 19, or, yeah, 1921. Very likely, some of us have wondered what was the meaning of the, these two mysterious pillars set up by Solomon in front of his temple and why they were called by these strange names. And then we have dropped the subject as one of those inexplicable things handed down in the Bible from old time, which we suppose can have no practical interest for us at the present day. Nevertheless, these strange names are not without a purpose. They, can they contain the key to the entire Bible and to the whole order of nature, and as emblems of, two great of the two great principles that are the pillars of the universe, they fitly stood at the threshold of that temple, which was designed to symbolize all the mysteries of being. In the, all the languages of the Semitic stock, the letters J and Y are interchangeable, as we see in the modern Arabic Yaqub for Jacob and the old Hebrew Yahweh for Jehovah. This gives us the form Yaqin, which at once reveals the enigma. The word Yak signifies one, and the termination he or hin is an intense intensive which may be rendered in English by only. Thus the word yakin resolves itself into the words one only, the all-embracing unity. The meaning meaning of be blah blah blah. The meaning of Boaz is clearly seen in the book of Ruth. There, Boaz appears as the kinsman, exercising the right of preemption, so familiar to those versed in Oriental law, a right which has for its purpose the maintenance of the family as the social unit. According to this widely spread custom, the purchaser, who is not a member of the family, buys the property subject to the right of kinsmen within certain degrees to purchase it back, and so bring it once more into the family to which it originally belonged." Whatever may be our personal opinions regarding the vexed questions of dogmatic theology, we can all agree as to the general principle indicated in the role acted by Boaz. He brings back the alien and alienated estate, that is to say, he redeems it in the legal sense of the word. As a matter of law, his power to do this results from his membership in the family. But his motive for doing, so, doing it is love, his affection for Ruth. Without pushing the analogy too far, we must we may say then that Boaz represents the principle of redemption in the widest sense of reclaiming an estate by right of relationship, while the innermost moving power in its recovery is love. That is what Boaz stands for in the beautiful story of Ruth, and there is no reason why we should not let the same name stand for the same thing when we seek the meaning of the mysterious pillar. 
Thus, the two pillars typify unity and the redeeming power of love, with the significant suggestion that the redemption results from the unity. They correspond with the two bonds or uniting principles spoken of by St. Paul, the unity of the spirit, which is the bond of peace, and love, which is the bond of perfection, perfect, perfectness. Oh my goodness. So that's his take on, um, on what those those two things mean. So Yaquin being unity and Boaz being love. Um, I will say that I take issue at least with his uh, interpretation that um, Boaz was marrying Ruth for love. The story of Ruth has always really, really creeped me out. Um, I get it to have like this affection for your mother-in-law. So you, and you feel like you've been adopted into their family. So when she's like, yeah, I know my son's dead. Um, and you don't have a husband, but I really got to go back to where I came from because I have nothing for me here. Um, Ruth goes with her. Right. But (laughs) the whole, like, let me be a prostitute to get a new husband thing or pretend to be a prostitute on the threshing floor to snag a new man. It just weirds me out. It reminds me of like every woman that's ever tried to uh, trap a man with, with a pregnancy. Um, So it just, it weirds me out and I don't love that story. So I don't really resonate with this whole like Boaz married Ruth for love. Um, that is, I got no impression of love in that story. I got a lot of impression of conniving and this old guy that's like, yeah, sure, I'll marry you. Because why not? You're probably, like, not ugly. I don't know. Like, it's just weird. It's so weird. And I talk about conspiracies. So, you know, it's weird if I think it's weird. <laughs> um... And then we have some other takes. Um, so one of the things about the uh, the pillars is that they are um, really prominent in uh, Masonic um, imagery and symbolism, and so it's it, and that's kind of how it's seeped into all the different other parts of um, of, of esoteric, you know thought basically because um, a lot of the people that were turn of the century you know 19th to 20th centuries um, a lot of them that were in the esoteric communities were fascinated by Freemason Freemasonic thinking um, and symbolism so to me I think that's that's how they were you know um, that's how they seeped into um, so much of our esoteric thought today is is through that Freemasonic lens. And so it's hard to not read some of the Masonic stuff. I mean, how do you, you know, I mean, it's just such a prevalent part of the scholarship on this. Um, But I I was not super impressed with the scholarship that I I saw regarding the Masons that I read on it. hard to know if they actually just don't know or if they are intentionally obfuscating the true scholarship or true meaning of the of the pillars um but they just got 
really off the rails in my opinion, but, um, you know, they're talking about, it means strength and stability. And I just, you know, to me, it feels like there, there has to be more than that. Um, the stability thing we will come back to, but it just, and, and well, and interestingly, he will, uh, he shall establish, we will also come back to, but it just, it doesn't, it, it never really made sense to me. I will say though that the, I'm far more fascinated about the columns themselves, the pillars themselves, than the pomegranates and chains. Um, I mean, there's levels to everything, right? But a pomegranate is, you know, it's got so many um, meanings of its own. For example, its role in the myth of Demeter in Greek mythology. Um, there's a lot of fertility symbolism associated with uh, the pomegranate. So I think, you know, you could get off into the weeds and pretty much everything. You know, it's the nature of symbolism, right? Is there's layers to all of it. Um, and then the other thing that uh, I, I found that some people were consider or comparing it to, um, this was in the Book of Talismans, Amulets, and Zodiacal Gems by William Thomas and Kate Pavitt. 1922, but they were talking about how the um, pillars also were representative of Gemini, the twins, Castor and Pollux. Um, and it says, the symbol of the two pillars joined at the top and base already referred to were also believed to typify the two pillars set up um by King Solomon in the porch of the temple, which were quite distinct and apart from the building itself and were not for any structural purpose, their use being entire, entirely symbol, symbolical. One was named Yaquin, meaning he will establish, and the other Boaz, signifying in him his strength. Also, they denoted the union of intellect and intuition. So again, we see there's there's layers to this, but to me... That's less interesting. So let's get into the meat of what I want to talk about. You can't talk about the Bible on this podcast without me referencing Ralph Ellis, I think. I think that's what that's like the the, um, the requirement these days is that I, I reference Ralph Ellis. So anyway, um, Ralph Ellis, if you don't know, is kind of an independent researcher who has looked at the Bible from the lens of the Jewish people being the original Hyksospheros of, um, I guess it would be, it's Northern Egypt, but it's Lower Egypt because Egypt is framed in the context of Upper Nile and Lower Nile. And of course, the Nile River flows north. So he has done a considerable amount of work several, several books explaining the connections and um, going back to the lists of pharaohs and comparing them and, and all that. So, of course, he has done work on Solomon, the most famous figure, possibly, um, of the Bible. I guess second to, um, well, maybe third. Okay, so Jesus. But if we're talking Old Testament, it would be um, David, and then Solomon, probably. But I think Ralph Ellis talks about all of those three 
and so many more. So anyway, he's got a book called Solomon Falcon of Sheba. I happen to have that book. So it worked out. And he was talking about a few different things. And that led me off into a whole other path. So one of the things that he has done is um, has basically identified Solomon with this pharaoh, Shashank I. And then he went into who is Hiram Abiff. In the Masonic story, Hiram Abiff is the architect of Solomon's temple. Um, that gets translated a little bit differently in the actual Bible. And so um, we may not recognize it unless you are familiar with Masons or whatever. But the story of Solomon's temple has two different Hirams, actually. So there's Hiram, the king of Tyre, and Hiram Abeth, the architect. So basically, it says that Solomon went to the king of Tyre and asked for his architect, and that's Hiram Abeth. Um, one thing that Ralph notes is that Tyre, as we know it, wouldn't necessarily be the Egyptian, or I'm sorry, the Lebanese city of Tyre, the Phoenician city of Tyre. Tyre also was um, known by the Hebrew name of Sor. Again, mispronunciations galore from Aaron. Um, but Sor means rock or stone. So this could be a reference to a stone mason, which, which is what you would expect for the architect of a building like this. Also, Tyre was known by the Egyptian word char, which can often be confused with the Egyptian word for thar in the different, you know, texts or whatever through issues with translation. And thar was the Egyptian word for the city we know as Tanis. This is, of course, the Greek form, I believe. But Tanis was the capital city of the Hyksos Empire. So that's really, really interesting um, that Tyre, when we're talking about the king of Tyre, it may not actually be that. It may be um, the the Hyksos king, right? So um, self-referential, self really. But King Hiram would also be Malek Hiram. That's the, the actual wordage there. And Malek really means more like prince. So Ralph's speculation is that King Hiram of Tyre and Hiram Abiff would actually be the son and grandson of King David. Um, a son other than Solomon, obviously. <laughs> and then the two architects... Um, that this could be referencing actually um, this Pharaoh Shashank the first had two architects named Hiram. They were the chief architects um, of the Pharaoh Shashank. And this was actually a, a grandfather and grandson. And we know that they had a strong relationship with um, stonework and with the, uh, the god Horus, um, which Hiram actually means uh, Horus in it, like in a, I guess a, a, the translation gets thrown off, but Hiram is a reference to Horus, the god Horus, which Horus is um, 
so every every one of the Egyptian gods has like this and has an animal that they've got like an animal head on a human body. It's weird, but whatever. So Horus is also always known as the falcon. And Shashank first actually has a sarcophagus that is a falcon, a stone sarcophagus. It's a really, really beautiful um, stone and I think metal sarcophagus. Um, the Egyptians were also really, really known for their metalwork. But um, Ralph's speculation is that this was actually Hiram's sarcophagus that was repurposed or um, requisitioned by the pharaoh and really by by his people because the burial for Shashank was really, really quick. And so they wouldn't have necessarily had time to have a um, sarcophagus made for him specifically. So it's possible that they just kind of took Hiram's. And so then that Horus um, falcon makes a lot more sense because Hiram would be named after Horus, right? The interesting thing then that Ralph gets into is that there's actually a Dijed pillar. We're going to call it Dijed. I know that's not correct, but I'm just going to mispronounce it the whole time. And then that way we're consistent. <laughs> so one thing is that in in Hiram Abith's full Egyptian name, there is actually a, a Jed pillar, a Jed pillar. And it's a Jed pillar with a, um, which, okay, so the Jed pillar is actually like a, one of the hieroglyphs. And then they have a little dash next to it. And so that dash means that it's self-referential. So instead of referring to the concept of the Jed pillar, um, for what the Jed Pillar stands for, it actually represents the Jed Pillar itself. And so it's almost like um, it's Hiram Abiff of the Jed Pillar. Like Hiram, the guy who was um, like Hiram, the guy known for making these pillars, basically. So it seems like it's historical verification that this Hiram Abiff architectural character um, was this Hiram of Fereshank in Egypt um, of the Hyksos dynasty or Hyksos empire. The other thing is the Jed pillar is known as it's, it's like meaning is stability. So that does reference back to that um, Yakin and Boaz where Yakin is translated as he will establish or stability. So it's interesting that interplay. I want to mention another quote specifically from Ralph. The fundamental rationale for the building of the temple is that it was a substitute for the lost temples and pyramids in Egypt. And so the design, nomenclature, and the liturgy of the Israelite priesthood followed the Hyksos originals as closely as possible. So even though this temple wouldn't actually be um, found in Egypt, it, it would be reasonable for them to follow the Egyptian model as closely as possible. Um, because it would be a new Egypt for the Hyksos people that were scattered. Ultimately, Ralph speculates that Yakin and Boaz are actually the nicknames 
of the pharaohs who had temples at Tanis and had their names inscribed on the columns of those temples. Um, so Boaz was like a Ubuas and da 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 da. Um, there's only so much I can mispronounce and still get away with it, guys. And then Yakin would be like an abbreviation nickname version of um, Akhenaten. So this would, that, that's what Ralph's speculation was. But that got me thinking a little bit more because one thing Ralph definitely referenced was this Pata character. And so I wanted to look more um, at Pata. Well, he was kind of the cult leader of Memphis. Um, and he was highly associated with this Jed pillar. Um, he was, this is a god, by the way. So like, this is all mythology, but yes. He created the Ennead, which was the nine, nine original-ish deities. Um, and he actually did it through intention and through speaking into existence. So very, very similar to the word was with God and the word was God and all that. The word was with the God at the beginning kind of deal. And then also uh, in the Genesis story, I believe God mentions like speaking into existence, right? God said, let there be light. And there was light, right? Speaking into existence. So, um, so some of, well, so the Ennead deities that he created were Atum, Shu, Tefnut, Geb, Nut, Osiris, Isis, Set, and Nephthys. Um, Ptah being the creator, he came first and then um, created all these other deities that kind of became more famous than him, but, you know, say Levi. The triad of Memphis, so Egypt was very much known for, well, and really Greece and all that, all that kind of Mediterranean cultures were known for having these triads at their specific, um, like each city kind of had their own triads, uh, especially in Egypt, you think like, I mean, Egypt was thousands and thousands of years. So like, we're not worshiping really necessarily in the same way that even Christians did a thousand years ago, even though we live in a Judeo-Christian Judeo society. So it makes sense that a, um, you know, a polytheistic relig pagan religion, for lack of a better term, um, would have differences in how they worshipped and possibly who they worshipped uh, a thousand years later, um, even though they had, uh, you know, a lot of similarities, a lot of holdovers too, right? And so you have a lot of different kind of eras of Egyptian religion between the old dynasties and the new dynasties, the middle dynasty, all that. So Ptah was in this triad of Memphis with his wife Sekhmet and his son Nefertum. Um, Nefertum was supposedly born of a blue lotus flower bud that was floating in the water at the very beginning of creation. So again, you get back into that, like, the word was with God at the very beginning and the word was, you know, the son of God and all that. Um, so you do have very, very much a similarity with the Bible, which, you know, makes sense if uh, the Jews were originally Egyptians, there would be crossover. Um, but also, interestingly, Ptah's characteristics were assumed by Amun and Osiris also. So that's kind of why we see that similarity between 
the Ptah, Sekhmet, Nefertim triad, and the Osiris, Isis, Horus triad, and then the um, Father God, Mary, Jesus triad that we see in the Bible. So it makes sense. Um, when I'm out of breath. But one thing we definitely do have in particular is that Osiris becomes associated with this Jed pillar also. And the Jed pillar is interesting because they would raise a Jed pillar after the harvest. I haven't really fully figured that out. People speculate that they were saying, you know, Osiris is like, it's like the stability of the culture because we're thanking them for the harvest or something. I think more likely it's something else. I mean, especially if you think about this being a phallic symbol, it would make sense to be like, okay, well, we've taken the food, we've taken the harvest, now we need to reseed the earth, so let me erect this phallus, essentially. I think that makes sense, um, but I don't have necessarily more information about that. Um, but the Jed Pillar is interesting. It Honestly, it looks like the symbol it looks like an electrical distribution tower to me as well as an electrical engineer, of course. Um, it also looks like, uh, so if you've ever seen Demolition Man, those little wands, doohickey wands that they use, like those tasers, essentially. Um, or it could look like a stacked Tesla coil. Like to me, it just looks very much, they say it looks like a, a like a collection of reeds. And I'm like, I don't think you guys have seen a collection of reeds if that's what you think that looks like. But to me, it looks very much electromagnetic. Um, come back to that later. But the other thing I was thinking is, um, is there a connection to the Asherah poles? And I will say, I don't know if Ralph mentions Asherah because I have not uh, read all of his work. It is a lot. Um, so he may have already covered all of this from an Egyptian perspective. I don't know. I may be rehashing some stuff. I don't want to take credit for other people's work. Um, but at the same time, if he has talked about it, I haven't read it. So this was kind of new work. So if it is mirroring something that someone else has said, um, it's more just like confirming from an in independent perspective rather than I'm not trying to take credit for anyone, anyone's work. Um, but we have Asherah poles in the Bible. And to me, this is like so odd because they're, tell they're telling us that these poles, which are essentially tree trunks that they have erected next to like some other things, they're saying that that is associated with Asherah or um, what we may know as Astarte, which is like a Babylonian female consort deity. And it's like, okay, so why would a female deity be, re be represented by a pole, which is a clearly phallic symbol? Um, unless, of course, it's like some like, baby, I'll climb you like a tree thing. And like all the lumberjacks of Minnesota come a running, like challenge accepted. Like, I mean, I guess technically if it's like a sexual thing like that, sure. But I think more likely it's just not correctly representative of, of what the meaning is. So, um, to me, there's something more there. The other thing that they associate with these Asherah poles are these Judah, Judahite. You may see it as like Judea, Judea, Judean, but it was technically found in Judah instead of Judea. 
I don't know, it, words, but it's these Judahite pillar figurines. So it's the head and breasts, like the bust and head of a woman, but the body from the boobs down is like a pillar. And so to me, um, I find that very odd. People have successfully made legs for women all the time um, in pottery. So why would this have a body of a pillar? Well, uh, you know, they associate it with the Asherah pole, but if the Asherah pole is um, possibly not associated with a woman, that's another thing I want to come back to. I want to talk about. Um, and then, you know, the other thing when we're talking about pillars in the Bible, you're talking about the pillar of fire. It provided light so that the Israelites could travel at night during the Exodus. It was like a cloud, pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And so that's really interesting too. But if we're talking about Israelites and we're talking about how the Israelites came out of Egypt, then we need to be looking to me back at Egypt. I'm going to take a page out of Ralph's book on this and go back to the Egyptian. So in looking at the Hebrew words for these Azure poles, which by the way, they don't specifically say pole. That's like added by translators, but the, the words that they use are Asherim and Asheroth. And the symbols that they use, the Hebrew letters that translate then into the Egyptian hieroglyphs, um, definitely it gives you this word Asher. Well, if you look at he, uh, Egyptian dictionaries, Asher means to burn, to melt, to roast, to try by fire. Um, or evening. So immediately I'm like, okay, so this Asher pole is actually a like giant torch. So I'm already thinking pillar of fire, right? To me, that's like, so obviously a mistranslation. It's definitely the pillar of fire. Well, if you look at Jewish scholarship, the pillar of fire is a representation of this Shekinah, it's this divine light or really divine presence, divine indwelling. Um, but interestingly, Shekinah is a feminine word and is understood by some to be the feminine aspect of God. So it would make sense if the Shekinah is, rep is like, so this pillar of fire is Shekinah and this Asherah pole is a representation of the pillar of fire, like a recreation of the pillar of fire for ritual purposes, then it would make sense that these pillars, if you were going to make a figurine of it, could be representative of a female on top and a pillar on the bottom because it's the Shekinah, but also the pillar, right? So I think those pillar figurines are also representative of this Jed column, this, um, this pillar of fire. And so the, then you're thinking, okay, so if this Jed column is like a, I mean, let's go down a conspiracy route, but okay. So, I mean, to me, it just, it looks like electromagnetic tech. It looks like lost tech. I'm just going to say it. I 
I think this was some sort of like electromagnetic torch that they had. I don't think it was just some stupid pole. It looks, it looks like tech to me. Um, and the other thing to me that backs that up is, so the top of the the Jed column symbol was also, I saw that, like, I don't think it has a name because it's like half a Jed. It's just the top Jed. But that little miniature symbol was, I saw that in some words in the, English, in the Egyptian dictionaries I was looking in. And those words meant knife, slaughter, terror. So to me, the Jed column, like, that seems like it's a weapon, right? For it to be associated with those kinds of, um, like, you know, discussions or whatever. And so then I'm thinking, okay, is this like um, in Indiana Jones where the Ark of the Covenant like lasers people's faces off? I just think this, this so this p pillar of fire, this Jed column, to me was a, some sort of electromagnetic tech that could be used for good as far as like lighting the way, but also could be used as a weapon. Um, just my personal take on it. But anyway, Proto-Hebrew, interestingly, has a very similar glyph to the Jed column. And I read a paper that had some different meanings associated with it because it like looked at the comparison between um, Proto-Hebrew and like Chinese and uh, Egyptian and um, different really, well, different like layers of Egyptian because Egyptian has a lot of layers. But some of the meanings that were associated with this similar git glyph that looked like a Jed column, even though it wasn't a Jed column and represented a different letter, but the meanings associated with that very similar looking glyph were erect, king, establisher, leader, ruler, to direct, to govern. So it just, it looks to me so much like the Jed column and it also has meanings so similar to the Jed column. So I think this Jed column was like some sort of ancient tech um, or maybe even perhaps just like a representation of ancient tech. You know what I mean? It could be literally that this was not Egyptian tech. This could be pre-Egyptian, um, pre really antediluvian, ancient, ancient, ancient tech that has been lost for millennia even before the Egyptians got a hold of it. So this, I mean, just as the Asherah pole is a representation of this pillar of fire Jed tech, the Jed, the Jed pillar, the, um, the, uh, the Jed pillar, the, um, Asherah pole, you know, all of that could, uh, the pillar of fire could have also been a representation of more ancient tech, right? So I'm not going to say that this is definitely what it is as far as like this specific, um, you know, you know, specifically what Egyptians had, but I think it's at least representative of that. And it makes sense that it was so, it's stayed so important um, as a result. But anything, anyway, there's another symbol that I found that was really, really interesting to me. So it was like a Jed column with, so imagine that the Jed column was a person right about where you would have your hands raised. It had these like hands coming out of the shoulders of the Jed column. And the shoulders, I guess, would have been like right below the interesting parts, if you can imagine that. So like 
imagine just like my head as the interesting parts of the Jed column. And then my body is the pillar. And then there's these hand symbols, raised hands, you know, like, ah, don't cry for me, Argentina. You know, like that very like raised hands, um, Juan Perón. And then above the head, the interesting part was this like oval with this squiggly line in it. But the squiggly line oval did not look like any other um, any other hieroglyphs that I found. And so to me, it looked more like, I don't know. I mean, it looked like a freaking Tesla coil, but yeah, I'm biased. But anyway, the interesting thing about this was this god person was named Kanemu or Khnemu. I don't, you know, me and pronunciations. But Khnemu was an even older creator god from the pre-dynastic period that then Ptah came to take on Khnemu's, um, you know, like uh, characteristics and such. So when I was looking for all of this, I thought, you know, the, the nail in the coffin was going to be that I could find Shekinah in English in an Egyptian dictionary and it mean the same thing. I didn't find that. I'm going to be honest, did not find that. But Sh in the Egyptian dictionary, I did find as a female pronoun and Kanemu is this god that's associated with the Jed column. So my thought was possibility. I mean, it's a stretch because among other things, I don't speak ancient Egyptian. Um, but my thought was Shekine is very similar to Shekinah. Perhaps Shekinah could be a female representation of Kanemu or like a aspect, a female aspect of Kanemu. I don't know. I don't know, but is but it is interesting. I don't know, but I have questions. Um, either way, I definitely think the Joaquin and Boaz pillars, like regardless of their names, are representations of the Jed pillar, which are representations of the Shekinah pillar of fire leading the way which are rep which could possibly be a representation of this ancient antediluvian electromagnetic tech slash weapon. Um, and I guess to me that makes sense, right? From a couple of things. One, we definitely know that antediluvian cultures had tech we don't have because they can create buildings that they could create buildings that we cannot recreate. The other thing about that is, um, clearly these pillars are important because they have stood the test of time. Whereas so many other symbols from the Bible and other ancient teachings have not. I think that um, the pillars 
leading the way at the front of the temple are a path. And that's interesting too, because, you know, for example, on the, um, what's he going to call it? The high priestess tarot card. You see, um, they're not necessarily the front, they're the back of the card, but the high priestess is sitting between the columns, the path. It's marking the path. And then again, it's not necessarily these pillars, but it's two towers on the moon card, moon tarot card. And you actually do physically have a path between those two towers. Of course, the path has a lobster on it. Symbolism, man. There's a lot of meanings. But I think these pillars are so important for a reason. And I think that I still do not fully understand them. Like, I am scratching the surface for sure. But there's something going on there. There's something going on there. And I'm telling you, it goes at least back to ancient Egypt, if not way further. But anyway, that's it for today. I hope I blew your mind. This was kind of a short episode, but I hope you I blew your mind because it blew my mind, to be honest. I didn't expect to find all those different representations, but it just, it all kind of lined up. I think, I think that's the thing. When you look at the Bible and you look at it in the context of ancient Egypt, instead of trying to find context in, um, in, you know, relative to Mesopotamia and Israel and all that, I think you get a lot more out of the Bible when you look at it in terms of Egypt. I certainly do. So if you're looking for more information about the Bible, I suggest at the very least you look at Egypt. And I think the fact that so many people have attempted to use the Egyptian narratives to disprove the Bible as saying, oh, look, they copyrighted or, you know, they, they, um, plagiarized Egyptian mythology. I think that is less a factor of them plagiarizing Egyptian mythology and more a factor of Jewish mythology being Egyptian mythology. So anyway, that's all I have for this week. I hope you have a fantastic week. Don't forget to check out the Substack with all of these links um, so that you can see a little bit of what I was seeing. Okay. You be good. Don't forget to keep it weird. Bye now.